0: Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge, to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews began the chapter by making a strong appeal for the Hebrew Christians to grow up, to go forward, to advance in spiritual maturity. The admonition, go forward, don't go backwards, don't go over the same ground over and over again, Move towards maturity in verse 4. Then the writer addressed some important concerns about those who had tasted the heavenly gift, who had shared in the Holy Spirit, who had tasted God's word. For those who were tempted, tested, if you will, to return back to a life of Judaism or ritualism or religion. He was encouraging them. That everything that you could possibly want or need is found in Christ. And the author illustrated the situation like a piece of land that when it's fruitful, it's blessed. When it is barren, it's cursed, in verses seven and eight. And so the writer basically says that he's confident that the warning doesn't apply to his readers. He now provides an anchor for spiritual maturity in verses 13 through 20. What is the believer's assurance? That the believer is actually experiencing spiritual growth, growing up, experiencing maturation. We have God's promises, he says in verses 13 through 18. The God of Israel promised to bless Abraham, and he did. In verses 13 through 15. Our heavenly father promises to bless us. And he will, he says in verses 16 through 18. We have a savior who is also a priest. Who dwells in the presence of God forever. In verses 19 through 20. And since God is incapable of lying. We have a strong strong. Anchor for our soul. These promises provide strong assurances of both consolation and hope in verse 18. And so elsewhere the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. And he said, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes. And so through him... The amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. It was Paul's way of saying, begin to count the promises that God has made to you. Begin to count the promises of redemption, salvation, reconciliation, forgiveness, hope, Start adding them up. Start thinking about them. And as you're thinking about them, remember in your mind that all of them find their fulfillment in Christ. Your best chance of surviving life's storms. Your best chance of making it through this life. When you face trial. Terror. Disappointment, difficulty, storms are the promises of God. And so he begins with God's promise to Abraham. Look at verse 9. We're just going to briefly go over verses 9, 10, and 11, and 12. Just very quickly, I just want to remind you of the context. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. What manner is that? The warning. Why is the author confident of their spiritual condition? He says, I'm confident about you because I can point to your life, the very real life that you live, not just what you profess to believe, but how you really live your life, how you get up in the morning, how you live throughout the day, how you go to bed at night, how you deal with one another. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Remember that the writer includes their work and labor of love, full assurance of hope, imitation through the faith and patience of the promises. Here's what he's saying. You have a life full of love. You have a life full of hope. You have a life... (laughs) that indicates that you are really a Christian. Labor of love, assurance of hope, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. A life marked by faith, a a life marked by hope, a life marked by love, But remember, even with that kind of a life, he warned them. There was yet still another warning. Don't drag your feet. Don't drag your feet. Get with it. Exercise real faith. Exercise real faith and patience so that you're going to obtain the blessing. How do you do that? The writer says, who's an example of patient faith? Why Father Abraham, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And when he basically says in verse 14, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you, the writer's quoting Genesis chapter 22. And as he's quoting Genesis chapter 22, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Genesis chapter 22, remember the context. The context, this is when Abraham was asked by God, take your son, your only son, who you love. Take him to the place that I'm going to show you and offer him there. And you'll remember, it doesn't say that Abraham hemmed and hawed or drug his feet. Remember, Abraham had already been given the promise I'm going to give you a son. And that in your son, the whole world is going to be blessed. And now God says, offer your son. And so what is going through Abraham's mind? What must Abraham be thinking? He must be thinking, in order for me to actually obey what God wants, I'm going to have to believe that God has the ability to bring my son back to life in order for his promises to be true. And you'll remember, he goes to that place, he lifts up the the knife, and you'll remember even as they're making their way up the hill, Isaac says to his father, Father, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. And you remember that the angel stays the hand of Abraham. And it's immediately after that that the Lord says, Surely, blessing I will bless you. And multiplying I will multiply you. You know, a lot of people ask me the question, Well, why did God allow that? I mean, are you telling me that God didn't know? Of course God knew. God knew exactly what Abraham was going to do. Just like God knows exactly what you're going to do. But you know who didn't know? Abraham. And again, I've used the example over and over again of Rocky Balboa in the movie Rocky. Do you remember... When he has to fight Apollo Creed for the heavyweight championship of the world, and he's talking with his manager and then he's talking with his girlfriend, and he basically has to go through with the fight and, and he just he, he says, "I gotta know if I could go the distance. What do you need, Rocky? I, I gotta know, I gotta know if I could go the distance." And there's only one way that he's going to find out that he gets to go the distance. Have you ever said in your heart, do I really believe this? Do I really believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Do I really believe what the Bible says? Do I really believe that Jesus came and that he died on a cross and he rose from the dead? Do I really believe that when God makes a promise that he keeps the promise and that when Jesus said, "I'm the resurrection and the life and he that believes in me even if he were dead yet shall he live"? Do I really believe that when when Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish? Do I really believe that when God makes a promise, he'll keep the promise? Bob Dylan used to sing, God don't make promises he don't keep. In the song he says, You got some big dreams, baby, but in order to dream, you still gotta be asleep. And then he says, When you gonna wake up? When you gonna wake up? Strengthen the things that remain. He said, Counterfeit philosophies have polluted all of your thoughts. Karl Marx has you by the throat, and Henry Kissinger's got you tied up into knots. When you gonna wake up? When you gonna wake up? He says, You got Innocent men in jail. Your insane asylums are filled. You got unrighteous doctors dealing drugs that will never cure your ills. When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? Do you believe the promises? Bill Clinton said something remarkable. He said, The road to tyranny we must never forget begins with the destruction of truth I'll never forget that the road to tyranny begins with the destruction of truth you know what he said is that's true and then he said nearly everyone will lie to you given the right circumstances (laughs) and we know that's true But the writer of Hebrews says, under no circumstance, under no circumstance will God lie to you. God won't lie to you. There is one who will not lie and never lie and can never be found lying. My friend Doug Groti says, Everyone may be entitled to his own opinion, but everyone is not entitled to his own truth. Truth is but one. And we can speak of God's glory and we can speak of God's goodness and his grace and his holiness and his knowledge and his love and his patience and his power. But when you speak of all of those things, all of those things inform the reality that God tells the truth. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The Bible says that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. C.S. Lewis said, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. And no one, no one can call God a liar. This is why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 verse 4, let God be true, but let every man be a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you're judged. Paul argues our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. And guess what every lie does? It authenticates that what God says is true. God is true. God tells the truth. And you know, sometimes we lie to ourselves. We hear the voice of Satan. It, this isn't possible. God says no. All things are possible, Luke 18:27. I'm too tired. Jesus says, no, I'll give you rest, Matthew 11. We say, nobody really loves me. And Jesus says, no, I love you, John 3:16, John 13, 34. We say, I can't go on. But God says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient. You can go on. I am going to give you the grace and the support that you are going to need in order to go forward. And so now we understand when when the Lord says to Abraham, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so the author recounts that story and gives that promise. And so then we look back on history. Did God bless Abraham? The answer is yes. Did he keep his word? Did Sarah and Abraham give birth to a son, Isaac? Yes. Did Isaac give birth to a son, Esau and Jacob? Did Jacob become the father of a lot of kids? Did those kids become a great tribe? Fast forward into the future. There is a nation that is established. And further promises are made. In verse 15 it says, and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. In Genesis chapter 22, when God had given him the promise... And then God kept his promise. Let me ask you a question. Did Abraham patiently endure? The text says so. The text says he did. Did he obtain the promise? God promised Abraham a seed. He received the seed. God promised Abraham a child through whom a nation of people would be born. He received that child. God promised a land in which they could live. They eventually received that land in part. All Abraham had to do was believe. That's all he had to do. He just simply had to believe that what God said was true. I'm going to ask you another question Did he stumble? Did he fall? Were there some setbacks? We know of at least two occasions when he lies about his identity concerning his hot, very hot wife, Sarah. Who even at the age of 70 made men's hearts melt. So does he lie once? Yes. Does he lie twice? Yes. Did God keep his promises to Abraham even though he stumbled and fell? Yes. Wiersbe again says, quote, After all... The covenants of God do not depend on the faith of the saints for their certainty. They depend on the faithfulness of God. God verified the promise of Genesis twenty-two, sixteen, 16, and 17 by swearing, by swearing, by swearing by himself. And that settled it. Abraham did not receive the promised blessing because of his own goodness or his own obedience. But because of the faithfulness of God, Abraham experienced many Trials and many testings, unquote. And if we had time right now, if I could have each and every one of you stand up. I think each and every one of you could testify about a trial, about a, t- about a setback, about a difficulty, about some pain, or or some problem, or some personal failure. And maybe even some doubt. Am I going to make it? Is my faith real? Is my confidence in God real? And the writer is basically saying... God's promises are based on God's identity and God's nature and God's will. Someone said, the truth will make you free, but first it will make you miserable. And why is that? Because the truth is that we're sinners and the truth is that we need a savior. And knowing the truth about ourselves will make us miserable, but also knowing the truth about Jesus will fill us full of joy and gratitude and overwhelming Gratitude and faith and confidence. The seed promised to Abraham was Isaac and the Jewish people. But I'm going to suggest to you that the seed promised to Abraham was more than just Isaac and the Jewish people. The promised seed is a reference to Jesus. It's a promise reference to the Lord. It's a reference to the nation of believers who would be born through the reality of the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about you. He's talking about everyone who will come into a confident relationship with God, having experienced grace and mercy and hope. Abraham believes the promises. According to the Bible, Abraham is the father of believers Romans 4:11 and 12 Romans 4:17 Abraham believes the promises he inherits the promises he sees a nation born as the seed of his faith a nation of people who believe God follow God and then Abraham inherits the promise in what way He's in heaven for real He is in heaven, really. He is face to face with the promise. I want you to think about that for just a moment because, again, Jesus makes reference to Father Abraham and Abraham's bosom and that place of the righteous dead. And Jesus takes them out of the place of the righteous dead. He delivers them into heaven. At this very moment, at this very moment, Abraham can see fully and completely. He can look into the eyes of his son's son's son. Abraham's inherited heaven. He's face to face with the promise. He's he's received the promise because he's patiently endured. And so the writer says we are to follow him and all other believers who have trusted God, who have endured to the end, who hear the promise and then embrace the promise and then walk in the promise in the direction where the promise is fulfilled. And look what it says, God's promise to Christ's heirs in verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of the dispute. In order to understand this, you have to understand the nature of giving oaths in the ancient world. Literally, the text reads, in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In our culture and society, you're supposed to be able to say, when the judge or the bailiff or whoever it is in a court of law says, lift up your hand, swear, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. By the way, do you have a legal obligation to tell the truth? The answer is yes. Can you actually be convicted of a crime if you knowingly, willfully perjure? That means tell a lie. The answer is yes. In other words, there, there, there's consequences. The implication being that under normal circumstances, under normal circumstances, when a person swears to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, we have every reason to believe he or she will tell the truth. Many of you know, I know that person. They're going to lie about everything. They can swear to God. They can swear to Jesus. They can swear to Muhammad or Buddha. They can swear to whoever they want. They're not going to tell the truth. And that may be true. But the writer is making the point that under normal circumstances, when an honest man says to you, I'm telling you the truth, usually that should be the end of the discussion. And so when God says, I swear by myself, is, can God swear by anything greater than himself? That's impossible because there's nothing greater than the self-existent God. And so he doesn't just simply make a statement. It's as if in heaven itself, he is placing his own hand on his own heart. And he says, I swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, me. And in verse 17... Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of this counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Let's look at that sentence just for a moment. The writer spells out clearly, That God was going to use Abraham as a timeless example of what he is willing to do for the heirs of promise. Thus, God determining to show, to show, to show who... Every single person in every single generation who knows the story of Genesis chapter 22, that God makes promises, that God keeps his promises to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. And who are the heirs of promise? Is this the physical children of, of Abraham? Is this Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and the rest? Is this the spiritual children of Abraham? Abraham. In verse 18, we discover that the heirs are those who have fled to God in Christ to find refuge. The heirs of the promise are everyone who have embraced the promise and come into a right relationship with God with God in Christ Jesus is the promise and so the heirs of the promise are every single person who believed that what God said to Abraham is true because Jesus came into the world and he made good on his promise and what exactly is that promise a trouble-free life a pain-free life A drug-free life. A disease-free life. A life where there's no pain or no sorrow or no difficulty. No, the promise, the promise, the promise is a promise to the promise of salvation. And the writer wants you to know. Just What a big promise that is. You mean there might be pain in my life? Yeah. You might, there there might be trouble in my life? Yeah. You might mean there might be difficulty, sorrow, separation, difficulty. The answer is yes, yes, and yes. So what, what exactly are you promising? It's that you can have your sins forgiven. It's that you can experience God's grace and mercy and that His love, that you can have an unending hope, a hope that never ends, that you get to go to heaven, that your sins are washed and cleansed. And the reality is that this world isn't everything, it cannot be everything. Jesus is the promise. There is no promise of salvation to the unbeliever. There is no promise of salvation to the make-believer. There is no promise of salvation for those who reject Christ or refuse to embrace Christ. There is no salvation for the person who doesn't believe that that when God made a promise to Abraham that he kept the promise. For the person who doesn't believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise and that everything that Jesus said and did, if they don't accept what Jesus said and did, then they're not those who possess the promise. Jesus is the promise and all the promises of God find their ultimate meaning and significance in Christ. The blessings and the benefits flow from the ministry of Christ. It's the work of Christ. It's the death of Christ. It's the resurrection of Christ. So why did God allow the trial and the difficulty? Why did God allow Abraham to experience set back after set back after setback so that future generations would know that no matter how impossible the situation god's going to keep his word so that future generations would know that god's counsel will stand so that future generations would know That God's covenants are true. So that future generations would know that God's promises are certain. The word immutable is a word that means not subject to change. And so in verse 18 when it says that by two immutable things. Two things that can never change under any circumstance. In which it is impossible for God to lie. What never changes? God never lies. We might have strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What are the two immutable things? Number one, the promise that God made to Abraham when God said you're going to have a seed and all the nations of the planet Earth are going to be blessed in that seed. Is he talking about the Jewish people? No. He's talking about a Jewish person. Jesus. Do you see Has the planet Earth benefited from the presence of the Jewish people? The answer is yes. But what does God have in mind? What God has in mind is a very specific promise. The promise to forgive you, to heal you, to forgive you and reconcile you. And make heaven a certainty for you. So the oath that rests... On the promise is attached to the very being and the very nature of God. The writer is making the statement that in order for God to lie, which he can't, he would cease to be God. If God failed to keep his promise, if God ever lied, then reality itself would cease to exist. The chair that you're sitting on or wherever you happen to be would evaporate right in front of you you wouldn't exist nothing would exist because god can't cease to exist martin luther wrote quote if god promises something then faith must Fight, a long and bitter fight for reason or the flesh judges that God's promises are impossible. Therefore, faith must battle against reason and its doubts. The devil, too, approaches us with promises. And indeed, such seems very plausible. It certainly requires a keen mind, rightly, to distinguish between God's true and the devil's false promises what are the devil's false promises you can't believe God's word You can't believe God's promises. You can't believe this or you can't believe that. You can't believe that God loves you, accepts you in Christ, and that all it takes in order to have a right relationship with God is to simply believe that Jesus is God's Messiah and place your confidence in him. The the Bible says, no, that's exactly what you have to believe. When God made his promise, he took Abraham out into the night. And as Abraham peered up into the sky, the Lord said, consider the stars in the heaven. As many as the stars are in the heavens, if you could count them, you can count the number of your descendants. God's promises are like the stars. The darker The night, the brighter, the promises, and it never becomes more real to you. It never becomes more real to you than when the trials and the storms and the difficulties come. There may come a time when you have to part ways with someone that you really love. There may come a time when you go to a doctor's office and they give the diagnosis that you have a disease that you don't have long to live. And you're going to need hope. You're going to need to know the truth about what happens when you die and how you're going to face the future. The writer is going to employ four figures or metaphors to drive home the absolute certainty, the utter reliability of God's promise. I want you to think just for a moment. What is the central promise being made? The central promise being made is those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Are there more promises? Of course there are. God promises to save everyone who believes. that saving faith. The kind of faith that causes you to truly trust Christ. The Lord God confirms it with an oath. The conclusion is inevitable. The believer is secure. And so the things that he's going to offer as metaphors are a city of refuge in verse 18. He's going to talk about an anchor in verse 19. He's going to talk about a forerunner in verse 20. He's going to talk about a high priest in verse 20. So what do all these metaphors, what are all these things, these symbols, if you will, what do they all have in common? They're all types and pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he says, a place of refuge. When he says... Thus, we have as an anchor of the soul, or actually before that in verse 18, we have strong consolation who have fled for (coughs) refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Who are the believers? These are the people who flee from this doomed world, from this cursed world. You have to remember that in the Old Testament and the Hebrews, they had what was called cities of refuge. A city of refuge was a place where you could go in order to be safe. Let's say you accidentally kill someone. It, It really wasn't on purpose. You accidentally killed somebody. In that culture and society, if you accidentally killed somebody... Their near relative could come and they could kill you. And so people needed a place where they could run or where they could hide or or where they could go to. If I were to use a modern example, imagine you're driving, you're, you're driving, you're minding your own business, and someone walks right in front of the street in Wadsworth and you hit them and they are dead. If you're a normal human being, what do you do? You call. For an ambulance, you call the police. You get help. You know that what you did, you, you had no desire to run anybody over. You didn't have any desire whatsoever to kill someone. Is it possible that you could accidentally do something and there would still be horrible consequences? The answer is yes. Do we live in a broken world? Yes, do we live in a doomed world? Yes, the true believer runs from sin and this doomed world into the kingdom of God, into the place of refuge, more accurately into the arms of the person who will give you refuge. And so part of what the New Testament is inviting you to do is not just to simply run away from this wicked, broken, hurt, doomed world it's to run into the arms of Jesus and to find in Jesus a place of refuge what does God do for the person who needs a place of shelter who needs a place to hide who needs a place where they can be safe Jesus says I'll be that place I'll be that person He provides himself. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. So he uses the image of a place of refuge and then he uses the image of an anchor. We have this hope as an anchor of the soul. So, what is the anchor of our soul? the unchanging word of God and the unchanging person of God, I want you to think this through. If God's word is unchanging and if God is unchanging in his identity, are his promises unchanging? That's exactly right. And so here's part of the point. The anchor of your soul is the unchanging God. The anchor of your soul is his unchanging word. The anchor of your soul are his sure promises, which must come to pass because we have his oath. Now, I want you to pause for a moment. I dare you. I dare you to imagine something more secure, something more certain. Go ahead, try. Try to imagine something more certain, more sure. There is no such thing. This world This life, its people, your government, the Broncos? On my radio program today, I was trying to talk about free will versus God's sovereignty, and I asked a person Do you think God created the Broncos to lose? Did God create the Colts to win? I was trying to get this person to understand something. That sometimes people make choices. And as people make choices and those collection of choices are are, are made, that consequences take place. And sometimes you make choices, don't you? And every single choice that you make has both intended and unintended consequences. We all know what an anchor is. It's that heavy metal object that was used to keep boats in place. In the ancient world, as well as the modern world, anchors were necessary because storms are certain. What will you do when the storm hits? What will you do to keep from drifting? The storms and the trials are inevitable. So what will you do when the storm hits? The storms of adversities. The Christian is repeatedly told, Remember, this world is not your home. Remember, this isn't everything. This isn't even close to everything. What will keep you stable in the wild waves of doubt and despair and uncertainty? The anchor isn't plunged into shifting sands in an ever-changing world. Our anchor is in heaven. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. If the anchor is God's unchanging word, if the anchor is God's unchanging nature does Jesus also fit as a description of our anchor? You know what? I've only discovered four things that are absolutely, positively, unmistakably, forever true. In order for something to be true, it has to be unchanging, immutable. It must be incorrigible. That means not subject to perfection. It's perfect in and of itself. And because truth is unchanging immutable incorrigible perfect there are only four things that are true forever the father the son and the holy spirit because the father is unchanging the son is unchanging the spirit is unchanging the father is perfect the son is perfect the holy spirit is perfect what do you suppose the fourth thing is everything they say and do. The chapter is is not meant to frighten saints into thinking that they've lost their salvation. Does the chapter warn against unbelief? Yes. Does the chapter warn... About unrepentance, yes. But the whole point of the chapter is that the unbeliever doesn't have to remain an unbeliever. And the unrepentant don't have to remain unrepentant. We have hope. Our hope is anchored in eternity. Now, look what it says at the end of verse 19 which enters the presence behind the veil. What's behind the veil? His presence. What is the veil? Remember, it was the large curtain that uh, hung in the temple, in in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and in the temple. There was a gigantic curtain. What's behind the curtain? Our hope. What's behind the veil? Our Savior. What's behind the veil? His presence. And if he's there, this is what the writer is saying. If he's there, you're there. You're there! Paul will write in Ephesians that we're seated in heavenly places. You're there. The Bible says if Christ is in you and you are in Christ then you are where Christ is. This is what the Bible is saying. You might think that you're in Littleton, Colorado. You might think that you're at Calvary. You might think that you're in sitting in a chair and all of that's true. You're in Littleton, you're sitting in a chair. But according to the Bible, you're in heaven. You're there right now. You're there with him. And so whatever your trial, whatever your difficulty, whatever your setback, whatever your pain, whatever your loneliness, whatever the temporary reality is that you're facing right now, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're in heaven right now. You're there. You're with him. Now, I want you to think this through. The veil in the temple marked the boundary where none could pass. The great curtain separated God from man. The very presence of God dwelt beyond the veil. No human being was allowed to enter except the priest once a year. And then only to offer the sacrifice for sin. And according to the New Testament, when Jesus died on the cross, when he died on the cross for your sin, the Bible says that the earth shook and when his voice said, it is finished, and he dismissed his spirit, according to the Bible, the veil was torn from the very top to the very bottom as if an invisible hand reached from heaven and tore the veil in half. The death of Jesus tore the curtain down forever. And in verse 20, look what it says. Where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What's a forerunner? A Toyota 4x4. Well, yeah, that's true. A forerunner is the one who goes before. The forerunner is the person who blazes a trail. So a forerunner is a trailblazer. Sort of. Why is this important? It's important. Is it important in part to ensure that we get there? Like I said, in a sense, we're already there. His presence there ensures the ultimate entrance of all who belong to him. Part of the point that the writer is making is that if Jesus is there, and if Jesus is beyond the veil, if Jesus is there, then you of necessity must go there. Why? Because It's no exaggeration to say that the simplest believer on earth is as certain of heaven as the saints who are already there. And so part of the point that the passage is making is that just as real and true that Abraham is there and Isaac is there and Jacob is there and Joseph is there. Daniel is there, and Isaiah is there, and Jeremiah is there, and John the Baptist is there, and Peter and James and John, they are there, and so are you. You're there. D. Anderson Berry writes The word translated foreigner is found nowhere else in the New Testament. This expresses an idea that's never contemplated in the Levitical economy. For the high priest entered the holiest only as a representative. He entered where none could follow. But our forerunner is a pledge that where he is, we shall also be. As a forerunner, num- number one, he announced our future arrival there. In other words, part of his role as the forerunner, when Jesus shows up into heaven... Now, I want you to think about this. Is Jesus the king of heaven? Does everything in heaven belong to him? Do you belong to him? Then Jesus is also announcing that everyone who belongs to me belongs with me. And he announces to all of the angels in heaven Scott's going to be there. Gina's going to be there. Judy, James, Joe, Jureen. Lee's going to be there. You're going to be there. Peter, James, John, you're going to be there. You're going to be there. You're going to be there. He announces to all of heaven that you must of necessity be there. He takes possession of heaven's glories on our behalf. He has gone to be able to bid his people welcome when they come and to present them before the majesty of heaven. That's what it means to be a forerunner. And when the writer of Hebrews wrote these words, he was encouraging the Hebrews that they've already inherited the promises of God, that they're already with Jesus, That even though right now, right now, in the here and now, there is pain, there is suffering, there is trial, there is temptation, there is setback, there's all kinds of reasons to give up. The writer is basically saying, You don't have to give up because you have a high priest. What's the fourth figure? the high priest but not just any high priest a high priest who's a high priest forever and the writer hinted at this in chapter 5 verse 10 where he digressed from chapter 5 verse 10 all the way to this point he talked about Melchizedek then he gave this gigantic warning and now he's back on track He returns to the initial theme. The initial theme is the superiority of Christ's priesthood over Aaron's priesthood. Why is that important? Because the eternal priesthood of Jesus guarantees our eternal preservation. That's the point. You have a priest who lives forever. Why is that important to you? Because he loves you forever. He forgives you forever. Forever. Have you ever asked the question, is it possible I could go to heaven and then blow it? I get there, and there I am, I'm in heaven, and Jesus looks at you and goes, I think I made an awful mistake. I think I've made just a terrible, terrible blunder. And the right answer is, Jesus can't make a terrible blunder. He can love you forever and he can forgive you forever. Why is this important? Because the eternal priesthood of Jesus guarantees not only that your eternal preservation, he is your eternal mediator. He is your eternal and intercessor. Jesus stands before God and presents us to God over and over and over again. And here is the point that is being made. You are acceptable to God now. You are acceptable to God tomorrow. And the day after that, and the year after that, and the century after that, and the millennium after that. And so that when you sing the song, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the stars, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun Paul writes about this in Romans 5.10 when he says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, much more, much more, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's Paul's way of saying Jesus is alive today and forever. He's alive today. And because he's alive today, he loves you and forgives you and reconciles you to the Father every single day. Isn't this a powerful passage on assurance? He's saying you have shelter from danger. You have an anchor in the violent storm. Do you? Have you run away from this wicked world that's doomed to die? And have you run into the arms of your savior? Do you have an eternal anchor that won't be damaged And cannot be disconnected? Or are you floating on forbidden shores? Have you made the journey beyond the veil? Or is there still a thick curtain separating you from God? Do you have a high priest? A mediator? An intercessor? Do you have hope? Paul says, Romans 8, 24, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope? And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Did Abraham at first see the promise? No. No. Did he believe the promise? So much so, he believed that if he were to take his son, his only son, and put him to death, that God must of necessity bring his son back to life in order to keep his promise. And so the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that God does exactly that. He allows his own son His only begotten Son to die for you. And then he brings him back to life. Do you have an unchanging hope and an unchanging God and his unchanging word? If you've ever said, I can't figure it out, the Bible promises, I'll direct your steps, Proverbs 3 5. Well, I'm not smart enough to figure this out, I'll give you wisdom. The Bible says, it's not worth it. The Bible says, I'll make it worth your while. I'll cause all things to work together for good for those who love me. Who are the called according to my purpose. I can't manage. I'll supply all of your needs in Christ. Philippians 4.19 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this wonderful chapter. Thank you, Lord, that we have an anchor. Thank you, Lord, that we have a forerunner. Thank you, Lord, that we have a place of refuge, a place of refuge, an anchor a priest a forerunner the answer to everything that we need or everything that we will need and so Lord cause us cause us cause us remind us remind us remind us when we think we're here remind us remind us remind us us that you've already established us in heaven it's not just a hope It's a certainty for everyone who loves you and trusts you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.